Or is your life lived out in this fear of hurting God? Because why? Because He saved you. I don't want to hurt God. He loved me. He was patient with me. He, he saved me. College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gaff. Okay, so the baseline, the bottom line that we've gotten from Paul so far is that you've got a problem. That's what he, that's all he's been talking about. He's like, you have a problem, and that problem is sin. We got to deal with that problem. The prob the reason that's a problem for you is because it leads, that problem of sin leads to punishment and separation from God. That's the only options. Uh, you know, I give this analogy sometimes. It's like if you, if somebody said, well, I'm a good person, but I just really think Hitler was onto something. Immediately you're like, well, you're, you're not a good person right off the bat, right? Because you know that good people don't condemn, or I'm sorry, don't approve of evil things, Right? So God cannot, because He is infinitely perfect, because He is the most perfect, He can't approve of even the smallest infraction, the smallest sins. He would immediately not be all good if He did. So that's the problem. And there's several answers. One answer is to ignore it, to not know that you have the problem. Paul says that that is us suppressing the truth. But the problem is that suppressing the truth doesn't make it go away. It doesn't make the law any less uh, something you're violating. Um, if you look, a lot of like totalitarian governments, like in Russia, for instance, they'll have they'll make up like a bunch of felonies, and they'll make up just like a a, a mass of them. And that way, whatever at whatever point they deem you a threat, they're like, okay, you're a problem, right? They can just watch you for a given, you know, couple of hours, and you're going to commit a felony that you don't even know exists, and they're going to pick you up for it. And just because you don't know that it's a felony, doesn't mean it's not on the books, right? They're still going to get you, and they're still going to put you away for this crime you've committed, right? And that's the problem: is not knowing the law doesn't get you out of violating it and the punishment for violating it. Now, obviously. Russia is an unjust version of that, and God is not unjust. Um, another option, one of the other answers that we have towards um, towards this sin problem, is to agree with it. Say, well, God, God's right. Um, we 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 have a problem. We we have violated His law. We are in sin. And Paul deals with this. He says, "How does that help you? How does agreeing with God that you've?" committed wrong actions make it make you right with him. It's essentially trying to be like a suck-up. Like, I gave you that, that example of like kind of sliding to God's side and being like, yeah, I told all these guys we were doing it wrong. And hoping that he's just like, oh, this one's on my team. Like, accepts you. But that's not how it works. So you can't ignore it. You can't agree with it. You also can't work for it. Right? The problem with perfection is that it's perfect. So as soon as that 
slips out away from you in your life, like the first moment that you that perfection is just gone, it's gone forever. There's no going back. It's not like you can be like, okay, no, but starting now, perfection. No, it's gone. That's it. And I hate to tell you this, but you all lost that before your first memories, guaranteed. Right? So you can't work for it. Uh, another another answer is being a part of the right group. Well, if I'm in the if I'm in the in group, right, and this is what the Jews are doing. This is what he's addressing in Romans is this group that is basically, oh, we're Jews, we're in the in group. God's already chosen our group. Well, Paul he he says, okay, first of all, anybody in your group sinning? Well, then clearly your group isn't just righteous inherently because it's a group. Right? We do this in church. It's like it's like you come to church and you're sitting in church and you're like, maybe God will notice me at church and he'll forget that he also saw me doing stupid stuff this week. It's like, that's not how it works. He's not just going to, like, God's not only at church. He's not only going to notice you at church. He also notices all the stuff you did the rest of the week. Right? So being in the in group doesn't get you there. You can't fool God. So here's the thing. You owe God an answer. You owe him an answer, and we've explored all of these other options, and none of them cut it. None of them get you there. There's only one answer, and the the cool part is that God is actually the one who gave it to us. He's the one that provided it. It's the best Sunday school answer in the world. It's Jesus, right? And Paul starts there. He says, like, Jesus is it. This, he's the way. He's the only answer to everything you got going on. And then he begins to outline the problem, and all of the wrong answers. And we're going to see that there is an answer that has been given to you and that it is the only answer. So the first thing I want you, uh, the, the question I want on your mind today is what is your answer? Is your answer the only answer that actually works? Or is your answer one of these counterfeit answers? These fake answers. What is your answer to God? So the first thing I want you to see is the need that your flesh has. This is like a summing up of everything Paul's been talking about so far in Romans. Paul has been just repeatedly showing us our need, and he slowly turned from the problem that we all have, right, just the need that we all have in sin, he slowly turned from that specifically to the Jews, and he began to say, um, he began to say that they weren't any better off. Well, there's a natural question that's going to come from his Jewish audience at this point, right? As he begins to shift and say, the Jews aren't doing any better in this problem that we all have. And the Jews would have naturally at this point said, well, wait a second. We're the chosen people. What's, what's the advantage then? If we don't get some kind of special treatment, what's, why even be a Jew? Why does it matter? And Paul is going to show us today because he's, He's been perpetually beating down this idea that being Jewish gives you anything special. And today he's going to show us what it actually does give us. What, what being Jewish gave them. And the cool part is it applies to us in the church as well. The same thing that was given to the Jews that gave them this advantage, this leg up, we have that. We have that same exact thing. Um, if you grew up like me, you played board games that were pretty simple. You grew up playing, you know, uh, anyone ever play Sorry? Sorry is the one where you pop the thing in the middle and the dice roll, right? And it, you just 
No, that's trouble. That's right. Yeah. So what's sorry is the one where you you land on people's head and they have to go back to their home base, right? And it's just like you're literally just moving the pieces around. Like that's all you're doing. You're rolling dice. You're moving pieces, right? Like the most complicated. If you grew up like me, the most complicated game ever was Monopoly. It's like because that involved money and doing math, and it's like everything else was just childish, right? Battleship, not that hard. Figured out real early if you stack all the ships on top of each other, you got a lot less space to get hit. <laughs> so, so the thing is, I grew up, and that was like that was what board games were. Well, eventually, I found if you know this about me, I found like really intricate board games, and um, I it was kind of like this moment. I went over to a friend's house, we played this really intricate board game, and I was like, oh man, board games like this exist. And since then, I've been kind of collecting these more intricate board games. Uh, they just click with my brain. I really like them. I enjoy them. And I don't mind reading the rule book to try to like make sure I know how to play. Well, the, the thing is my family doesn't want to read the rule book. They don't want to do it. So what happens? I'm the only person that knows all the rules. And, and so I will tell them the rules. And even if I told them a rule, if, you know, an hour later in the game, because these are pretty long games, right? They forget a rule and their strategy tanks. They go, well, I didn't know that. And I'm like, well, I told you. I don't what, I mean, I read the rule book. You didn't read the rule book. I told you that was a rule. Or maybe I didn't. In which case, the answer is maybe you should have read the rule book. You know, it's not necessarily my fault that I didn't memorize the rule book and then tell you the entire thing, right? What am I getting at? The Israelites were given God's rule book. Every instruction, everything God wanted them to know, they didn't have to guess. See, the rest of the world is trying to figure out what God's like. The advantage of being Jewish, of being an Israelite in the Old Testament was they didn't have to guess. They had God's explicit uh, description of himself and exactly what his plan was, what he was trying to do. And even with all of that revelation, they missed the point of it. Look with me at Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First, that they were entrusted with the actual words of God. What then, if some did not believe? Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Far from it. Rather, God must prove to be true, though every person be found a liar, as it is written so that you are justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So he starts out with this question. He says, what is the advantage? And he immediately says, the advantage is you had the actual words of God. You had the rule book. You knew exactly what God demanded and wanted of you. You knew what God was like. Have you ever heard this from your, your non-Christian friends? Like, God just seems mean. Just judgmental. He's, you know, he, well, I, know, I believe there's a God, but he's just distant. He, you know, he made the world and he left. He's not paying attention to me specifically. You hear all these things, right? But God has told us who he is. He's given us his character. The Israelites had it first. Not to mention all of the Old Testament cultures, right, are guessing. They're saying, well, God's like this and God's like this. Well, we serve this God and we serve this God. Well, who, who ends up getting vindicated? The Israelites. They were the only ones with the real God with the one true God. That's the whole point. Again, one of my favorite references in the entire Bible, Elijah on Mount Carmel. The point of that 
that duel between Baal's prophets and Elijah is not Yahweh stronger than Baal. It's that Yahweh exists and Baal doesn't. That's the point. And the Jews had this information. They knew exactly who God was. And they also had God's promises about redemption. They were the only people that had the plan. God God is going to do something. He's going to fix the problem, right? And they still ended up doing what everybody else was doing. Every other religion was about getting the gods off your back, keeping all the rules. And the Israelites had the only God who had said, no, 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 I'm going to fix this problem. And they still reverted to this rule-following way. They missed it. The thing is, we have these same advantages. We can see who God is. We don't have to guess. We feel ways about God all the time, especially when we're going through rough stuff. And we forget to go check on who He actually is based on what He has said about it. He hasn't lied to you. He's given you explicitly who He is. So then, the the, the question kind of continues. It's like, okay, okay, fine, fine. But God chose the Israelites, and some of them are not believing. Some of them have chosen not to believe. So how is that not God, you know, uh, failing, essentially? How is that not God not being true to them? And he says this phrase, it, it, it sounds kind of weird. He says, God will prove to be true even though every person be found a liar. What does that mean? He's saying that God faithfully has offered the way of redemption to all people. And if no one ever got saved, ever, it would not be God's unfaithfulness that did that. It would be ours. God would have been proven true and faithful at the end of all time if no one ever ended up in heaven, not one person. So God's faithfulness is unquestioned. It's our unfaithfulness that helps us miss out on what He's doing, on His plan for redemption. Look at uh, one thing I want you to see. Um, Okay, let me talk about this. Chapters 9 through 11. We're not really going to do chapters 9 through 11, but we are going to take a peek at them today, and here's why. 9 through 11 is what I'm, I call the Jewish excursus, right? So 1 through 8 is a presentation of the gospel. And then this question that Paul's answering today lightly, well, what's the advantage of being Jewish? He's going to answer more heavily in 9 through 11. In 9 through 11, he's going to answer this version of that question. Has God failed because some Jews are not getting saved? Has God actually failed? And so he's going to spend three chapters uh, chipping away really at that that accusation that God somehow didn't come through for the Israelites, right? Now, we're going to see some parallel themes, right? So I want you to look. You, you, you don't have to flip with me. I'll read it. Uh, but this is in chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who, ha- who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But, though, but through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Okay, what does that mean? He's saying that just because you are an ethnic descendant of Abraham, an Israelite, a Jew, does not mean you're a child of God. Now, within the ethnic descendants of Abraham, there were children of God. By what? Faith. They inherited the promise through faith. The same promise that Abraham inherited through faith. They received that promise the same way that you received that promise. By faith. That's what makes children of God. So that's why God has not failed. 
because everyone who was an Israelite but didn't get saved was not a child of God. No child of God will not get to heaven. It doesn't work like that. In verse 4, he says, God has been faithful, and he gave, them, he gave them the rule book, he gave them the promise, he gave them the Messiah. So it's fully on their shoulders if they are unfaithful to him in his faithfulness. Okay, let's look, look at verse 5 through 8. We're back in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 5 through 8. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is, uh, is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking from a human viewpoint. Far from it. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as we are slanderously reported and some claim that we say, let's do evil that good may come of it. Their condemnation is deserved. Okay, again, I'm going to show you the parallel theme in chapter 9. In chapter 9, it says this, starting in verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? On the contrary, who are you, you foolish person, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not uh, say to the molder, what did, I'm um, sorry, not say back to the molder, what did you, uh, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter not have the right over the clay to make some of uh, make from the same lump an object for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make known uh, to make His power known, endured with great patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? Okay, here's what He's saying: the Jews are making an accusation against God, definitely in chapter nine, but lightly in chapter in chapter three. We're addressing this accusation. God was obligated to them because he chose them. God was obligated to the Jewish people because they were his chosen people. This is an accusation. They are accusing God of not following through on his promise. This is a big accusation. So Paul is going to deal with this. He's saying, he's saying, you're saying God chose us, so why are we in trouble? God is not obligated to you. God chose to have mercy on who? His children. The faithful, that's a promise. All who have faith, all who call the name of the Lord, he will have mercy on. So everyone who doesn't do that, they get to be objects of wrath because he's not obligated to anyone. As a matter of fact, um, you what he's saying in that same lump thing is he's saying, I made a people, an ethnic people called Israel. And out of that people... Some people were unfaithful and became objects of wrath, and some people were objects of mercy. And you don't get, just because you came out of that same lump of clay, that ethnic people group, you don't automatically get to say, well, I deserve to be made into the object of mercy. That's not the way it works. It's the same with us. We don't get to say, well, I, I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Buckle the Bible belt. My parents went to church. My grandparents went to church. Like, I've heard the gospel my entire life. Okay, were you faithful to God? Did you have faith in His answer? Or did you just have faith in the fact that like, you were in the in-group? You knew a guy who knew Jesus. It doesn't work like that, right? So he's saying, I have had mercy 
on my children. I'm not obligated to anyone else. See, earlier we saw that God's righteousness is revealed in wrath. What does that mean? As God pulled away from sin, it revealed the... What, what was His righteousness? Let's define that term. God's righteousness, it sounds like we're saying that God is right, but that term, the way Paul's using it in the book of Romans, God's righteousness, righteousness is His plan to make us right with Him. So wrath reveals God's plan to make us right with Him by Him pulling away and showing us that something's wrong with Him. Something is broken between us. We need to be put right. It reveals His righteousness. So what they're saying is, well, if God's, uh, if God's wrath glorifies Him, well then, why am I being punished? I'm just helping God be glorified. And the reason he calls that looking at it with a human perspective is he's saying, first of all, nothing you do, especially not your rebellion and sin, is magnifying God's glory. It's just confirming it. God is just to judge sinners. Amen. And when you sin, he is confirmed in that justice. It's made apparent. It's revealed to be right that he would judge you. So he's saying, and he says, there are people who think that that we're preaching this, uh, he calls it, so, uh, I can't remember where else this is, um, an opportunity for the flesh. He's saying, it's not that you just get to go out sinning because God's wrath is somehow magnified in your sin, or God's grace, because it, you know his grace will extend beyond all your sins, so you can just keep sinning and it'll make his grace that much bigger. It doesn't work like that. His grace and his wrath, they're infinite. Your sin confirms them. Now, when you fall as a believer, you see God's grace abound to cover you. It was already there. It's already infinite. Your sin's not infinite. Your your debt is infinite. But God's grace covers it. But when you sin as a non-believer, you are infinitely covered by God's wrath, and you're confirming that the same way. That's all you're doing. Um, now, Paul, Paul is about to go on like a like an Old Testament tirade right here. And what he's going to do is he's going to show without a shadow of a doubt that the Jews had the information they needed. They, this is why they can be said to have had an advantage. What, what gave them the advantage? How did they know? Well, he said they had God's word. So let's, they had God's word. So let's look at uh, starting in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they keep deceiving. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and they have not known the way of peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin." See, if, if my Bible has it separated, if, you, if your Bible has a different font or a different kind of paragraphing for 11 through 18, 
Those are all Old Testament quotes. All Old Testament quotes that Paul's pulling out. He's making the argument, instead of saying, well, you know, where, where do we start? He said, well, wrath is obvious. We can see it. We can see that people are degrading away from the, the obvious truths of God that we see in nature, that God created everything, that He's all-powerful. He goes away from that natural proof, and he says, here's why Jews had an advantage. They had it spelled out by God Himself. Look at all of these places where the need that you have for redemption is laid out in the Old Testament. Here's all the places God said, you have a problem. You have a problem, and only I have the answer. Their advantage was that they got the leg up to see clearly what God was doing, to see clearly the problem of sin, to see clearly who God was, and to see clearly that He had a plan to save. That's what the advantage was. We have that same advantage. You sit in church Sunday after Sunday, and you hear the gospel, and you hear, hey, you're, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And you walk out the door, and you're like, okay, i got to do better. You've missed it. You've missed the whole point. It's not about walking out the door and doing better. It's about what God has done. He says, you can't seek God. What does that mean? The gospel is that God has sought us. God came for us. That's the point of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that we are not going to get Him. We don't have the capability to go and get Him. He had to come get us. The gospel is that He seeks us, but I want you to understand that He seeks all of us. That's why Paul says general revelation. What's general revelation? This is special revelation. The Word of God tells us it's God revealing about Himself truth, right? But general revelation is that the whole world points to the existence of God, right? And God set up a system where general revelation would automatically point you to the truth of God. He came for us even in general revelation. What what is general revelation doing? It's preparing us to receive the truth of the gospel. Here's the idea. Picture that you are uh, in the middle of the ocean, just like waiting. And you look around and you're like, I don't see any land. I have a problem. The realization of that problem should help you think, I need to be saved. Now, the crazy thing is how many people in humanity then just start swimming around like, no, I got this. I'll figure it out. There's land somewhere around here. Right? That's what we're doing. But the point is that we actually cannot swim far enough. There's no way. It's infinite, infinite ocean. The problem, and what, what God has designed it to do, is show us that there's a problem. Now picture uh, a rescue helicopter comes in. That is the gospel. And the idea is that as I see the desperate situation I'm in, general revelation, that something is broken, that I'm in a bad way, is that then when I see the rescue helicopter, I'll go, please save me. And, and, and what do some people do, right? They keep swimming. They're like, nah, I don't need the helicopter. I'm good. I'll make it out of here, right? Now, and it can work both ways, right? You can see that you're in a desperate situation, and then when the helicopter comes in, go, oh my goodness, I need to be saved. What do we see the alternative is? We know that some people are woken up by the presentation of the gospel. So that's the person that's like floating in the ocean thinking, this is a nice like vacation. I'm just out here chilling. And then they see the helicopter and they think, why is there a rescue helicopter in the sky? And then they look around and go, I'm in trouble, right? And they saw the gospel before they saw the need. But either way, once they realize the need, they cry out, save me. 
That's the whole point. And I want you to understand something. Faith is not an action. Faith is a cry for help. Think about this. When that person cries for help, did are they saved? No, they're still in the ocean. They, like, they can scream and holler all day. It doesn't save them. What has to happen is that the helicopter actually has to come down and pick them up and take them to land. They have to get saved by the helicopter. God initiates the process. He saves us. But you have an option to reject that helicopter and keep swimming, to go away from him. You can stay in your hopeless state. You can say, well, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm fine. I haven't drowned yet. I'll keep swimming. I'll find land eventually. Or you can cry out to be saved. You're, you're not saving yourself. God is still the one coming and getting you. He still initiated the process. He's the one that let you see that you had a problem. And then he's the one that gave you the answer. The cool part is this. If you're stuck in the middle of the ocean and you cry out for help, there may not be a helicopter. The cool part about the gospel is that God has stated clearly in his word, he has promised that everyone who cries for help, he will save. He will. It's a guarantee that everyone who cries out in that hopeless situation, he will come get them. He will bring the gospel to them. He will, the gospel will come and inhabit their life, that they will be inhabited with the Spirit and that they won't be left in their hopeless situation. I want you to see in uh, verses 10 through 12, that is the sinful condition. To be in the worst situation you can be in. It's absolutely hopeless. I want you to see in 13 through 16, that is the sinful life. And I want you to notice in the sinful life, there's a, there's a speech focus. The Bible tells us that what's inside of us is revealed through our tongues. You may never have committed a murder, but I bet you've said some hateful things. That hate's in your heart even if it hasn't made it all the way to your hands and you didn't do something about it. So there's a speech focus in 13 through 16, the sinful life. And then 17 through 18 is the sinful source. No fear of God. No fear of God. I want you to understand that phrase, fear. A really bad perspective on that phrase. When we hear that phrase, we think, I'm supposed to be afraid of God? No. You know what I'm afraid of? I'm really afraid of, of hurting the people that are close to me. I'm afraid of hurting my wife with my bad attitude or my harsh words. I'm afraid of disrespecting my parents, of stomping on the people around me who look to me for discipleship or care. I'm afraid of harming those people. I have a relationship with them. I care about them. I put them first, and I'm afraid of hurting them. That's the fear of the Lord. It's a fear that says, I don't want to be offending God. I don't want to be on the wrong side of God. Now, there's a, there's a healthy level of thinking you know, uh, the Bible tells us don't fear man, but fear the one who has the power to destroy souls, right? There is a realization of punishment that comes with offending God uh, for your whole life. But if you're saved, I want you to understand, if you've, if you've trusted in Him, that fear is not that God will cast you into hell. That fear is that you'll hurt God, who you're supposed to have this intimate, loving relationship with. That's the kind of fear that a believer has towards God. Non-believers, 
They don't even care if he has the power to punish. They don't fear God at all. That is the sinful source that leads to a sinful life. Now, I want you to see something else. The point of God's wrath in our life, there's a completion point to wrath, right? That's the end, the the last day, right? Um, When you die, your physical death, wherever you stand with God, that's going to be completed, okay? But in your life, the wrath of God is designed to call you to repentance, believer or non-believer, right? If you're a believer, God lets you taste wrath because he wants you to be drawn back to him. It's a pain response. It's when you touch a burner and you go, oh, I don't want to touch that. It's hot, right? And by that same token, that same pain response is it's more agonizing, more miserable for non-believers because he's trying to turn them from the hardness of their hearts. It's designed for repentance. And what we saw in chapter 2 is that as non-believers harden their hearts more and go down the, the road to depravity, God pulls away more and more to match their hardness with their misery. God simultaneously becomes harder to accept, harder to humble yourself to, and more desperately missed. You become more miserable. And that is designed to give you a fighting chance. Because if God only let you be this miserable and you became this hard, guess what would happen? You'd never turn. You'd never find truth. So he pulls away so that your misery matches your hardness. He does this with believers too, but but it's for believers, we can live in a season of rebellion. I want you to understand that that should call into question your salvation. You want to look at that and say, am I truly, am I truly a believer if I'm going to live this way, right? But God lets you feel that same pull, not because he's just angry at you. It's because he cares about you so deeply and he knows that sin hurts you. It drags you away from him. Once we see our need, once you look around and you see the ocean that you're sitting in, you can cry out for help to that helicopter. You can receive the gospel. That's the whole point. And, and again, I don't care if you see the gospel first and then you look around and go, oh, I'm in trouble. But once you see that need, you can say, I need to be saved. And the alternative is all these false answers all these ways you're going to save yourself. So that's the need of the flesh. That's the summing up of what Paul's been talking about so far. And then he's going to, he's going to move on. He's going to talk about the answer to my need. Um, okay, one of the, uh, just a great movie that I grew up with, watching with my dad all the time, was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, fantastic movie. Probably, in my opinion, it's the best Indiana Jones movie. Definitely everything that came after that was terrible. Um, but the, the point is, in that movie... There's a scene, I'm going to ruin a little bit, I'm sorry. Listen, it's decades old. I don't care if I spoil it for you, it's your fault. Yeah. Um, here's the thing. There's a scene in there, he's going through these sets of booby traps, and they're like, you know, Christian religious themed, right? And one of them, there's a alpha, uh, uh, like letters all over the floor, right? And they're little tiles. And he has to step on the right tiles to get across the floor, right? <laughs> And he has a clue to the riddle, and he knows that it's going to be the name of God. So it's going to be Jehovah, right? Now, he makes a mistake because it's, it's the Latin word for Jehovah, which doesn't have a J, so he immediately falls through the floor and catches himself, has to pull himself back up. But then he spells it the Latin way with an I, and he's able to cross. Okay, what's my point? He knew 
that his footsteps had to be guided in the name of Jehovah, in the name of God. That was the only way to walk and not fall all the way through. The answer to your fleshly need, to your sin, is the name of Jesus Christ. And if you don't walk according to His name, you will fall through. You will not make it. There's no way to get to the other side. There's no way to get to God except to walk in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what I want you to see. Look in verse uh, 21. Now, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by the grace, by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished for the demonstration that is of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Apart, he, he, he starts this phrase, he says, apart from the law and uh, witnessed by the law and the prophets. What's he saying? In the Old Testament, when we, when we look at the Law and the Prophets, they were pointing us to something specific. But, but we weren't able to see it clearly. The Israelites couldn't see clearly what Jesus was going to do and who He was going to be. They were, they were looking at the Law and the Prophets and they were getting an unclear view of what was to come. That was the witness of who Jesus would be, right? But he, now He's saying, apart from that, we see clearly. That's because when Jesus came, we now didn't have to look at the Law and the Prophets to see Jesus. We could look directly at Jesus. We could see Jesus apart from the Law. He was still being witnessed to by the Law and the Prophets, being witnessed to by the Old Testament testimony about who He would be, but we could see Him clearly for who He was. We could look directly at Him, right? So it becomes clear. The Law was pointing to God. And, and he says it was pointing to God's what? To God's righteousness. To God's plan to make us right with him. He was pointing, the law and the prophets were pointing to this. And it's now clearly seen in Jesus. But not just in Jesus. I want you to see this. It's seen specifically in his blood. Why? Because the answer that you owe to God is blood. You owe your blood. You owe yourself as a sacrifice to God for your sins. The problem is you aren't that impressive of a sacrifice. So God had to come himself as Jesus to live that perfect life, to be a, a, a priceless sacrifice, and to pay with his blood. And what did he do when, when he paid with his blood? He bought us. He bought his children with his blood. That word propitiation, it means the removal of wrath. It means that wrath was taken off. I want you to see this. The whole Old Testament, God was promising, I'm going to make a way for you to see my love. The problem was it was unclear because 
everybody starts out under wrath and we couldn't see what the thing was that was going to allow us to get to love, right? Old Testament believers were believing that God had promised he would make that possible, but they couldn't see how. We have a greater advantage even than them because we look backwards and we can see so clearly what God did to move us from wrath to love. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's believing, putting all your hope in the fact that he died in your place that moves you. It removes God's wrath from you and allows you to have access to God's love for you. That is what propitiation is doing. And who's that for? It's for all. It's for all who would call on the name of the Lord. Let's look at, uh, we're going to look at chapter 9 again. This is starting in verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with great patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon objects of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, namely us, whom he also called, not only from among the Jews, but from among the Gentiles. What's he saying? He just said that God uh, didn't punish sins before, like, didn't punish sins uh, when they happened. He passed over them for a time. What does that mean? Here's the thing. The moment that you came into existence, you were born into sin and into slavery, and God could have zapped you to hell and been just, been absolutely just. It was God enduring all of our sin, enduring all of our guilt towards him so that some of us could respond in faith and be made right with him. And you know what happens? God's patience with those who will end up getting wrath is magnifying his glory because he didn't have to have patience with any of us. So his patience is magnified. His wrath is, is proven right. And then at the same time, his love is magnified because he loved us so much. He endured our sin so that we could get to the point where we could be forgiven. If God just zaps us all to hell on the fact that we're born into slavery right when we're born, then None of us ever have a chance to even make it to the point of being called by the gospel, of responding to the gospel. God's patience, his love is magnified because he endures our enmity towards him, our hatred towards him, our rebellion towards him. I mean, he's a mighty king. He could put the hammer down at any moment, but he chooses to wait he chooses to wait because he's showing us his love. And what is he waiting for? Look in verse 25 of chapter 9. It says, As he also says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. That's the picture right there. God's patience is so that People who are not his can become his. And he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to wait on any of us. He chooses to endure our insolent, arrogant, prideful rebellion so that we can move from death to life, from wrath to love, from not his people to sons of the living God. That is the gospel. That's what God is doing. And I want you to see this. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible is right next to it. It's chapter 10, starting in verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the gospel. That is the answer. Jesus Christ is the answer to your need. His blood made a way for you, God's enduring patience, to get you from death to life. That's the whole point. And then I want you to see what God says the result of this is. You have one answer. Your answer to God, the only answer that works, that gets us to God, is to know that you don't have the answer, that God gave you the answer, that He has the answer. Again, you're stuck in that ocean, and, you're, and you're, you've got every way you can think of to get out of that ocean. None of it saves you. The only answer is the one provided by God to you. It's the one that He chose to make away. There's no third option. It's not like, well, rebellion, Jesus, or like, you know, uh, I, you know, go to church on Christmas and Easter. There's like, it doesn't work like that. There is only Jesus or rebellion. Those are your only options. And God is the one who has given you the answer. God has promised you this. And he's given you a guarantee of the result. Think about this. We, we miss this so much. There's so much of what God is doing that is guaranteeing what he said, how he says he'll save us. Think about the alternative. This is where it will make clear to you what the, how the promise is so amazing. What if God said, Jesus is the only way to heaven, and I'll save some of the people who call on him? Okay, well, now we got a problem. What if I call on the name of the Lord, and he just says, yeah, not that one. Like, like this other one, sure, he called, uh, I'll let him in. Like, now we got a problem. See, God has made a promise that everyone who believes on the blood of his son, everyone who believes and walks on the name of Jesus to get to the Father will be made righteous, will be saved. So there's no version of this where you have to, you have to go, man, I, I just, I call, I call to God every day, but I just really hope that, I hope that he, you know, eventually accepts me. No. That would be terrifying. That would be you'd be in an existential crisis every day of your life. I don't know how you roll out of bed. The reality is that as soon as you've called on the name of the Lord, you've said, "My only hope is in the blood of Jesus Christ." He settles it. He determines it. It's done. Look in verse twenty-seven. Where then is boasting? It has been excluded by what kind of law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, the Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Far from it. On the contrary, we establish the law. What is a law of faith? Remember, faith isn't an action. So how, how, do we, how do we 
not do an action that then results in a list of actions being completed. Like, that doesn't make sense. We fulfill the law through faith. We complete the law of faith. Here, here's what Paul's saying. You don't get to take credit for this. No part of this. Like, you recognizing, you, you responding to the reality that God has let you see that you're in trouble doesn't make you smart. As a matter of fact, it's the smart people who are trying to go, well, I agreed with God. I'm, you know, I'm, I try to be a good person. They're trying to smart their way into heaven. The only real answer is to beg God for mercy, to cry out to Him. And He's saying, you don't get to take credit for doing the thing that actually you should all do, that everyone on earth should do. Because when you realize your situation, you should respond by crying out to God. He says, you're, you're not justified by works. He asked this weird question in the middle of this. He says, is God not the God of the Gentiles? See, here's the interesting thing about that question. The Jews would have said that there was only one real God. And so by that very fact alone, he was the God of everything in existence. There was only one God. So he had to be the God of the Gentiles as well. Well, here's the thing. I don't want you to think, you know, well, there's, you know, there's the Christian God and then there's like, you know, Allah and Islam, they have a God. No, there is one God and he is the God of all. And every single person's relationship with him will be perfected. I want you to understand that. Some people's relationship with God will be perfected in wrath for all of eternity. And other people's relationship with God will be perfected in love and in mercy. But there will not be any relationship with God that is not completed on the final day. They will all be perfected. He says, by faith and through faith. Why does he say that? It's a weird phrase. He says, by faith and through faith. He says, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. He's driving this point home that he's been, he's been harping on for chapters and chapters now. He's been saying, you are not special because of your ethnicity, because of your in-group, because of your moral beliefs. You're not special because you've read the Bible. God will justify everyone who gets justified because of their faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is all there is. So that brings me back to this question. How do we complete a, a list of actions, a law, with faith? A non-action. Here's the thing. If you remember last week, I had these columns set up, right? And I showed you how whether you agree with God and aren't a Christian or whether you are a Christian, you haven't done anything. You've, as a matter of fact, all you've ever done is sin. But in the middle, I had Jesus and he had done everything. When you believe on him, when you believe in his blood, you are credited with everything he has done. So get this, when we believe on Jesus, the fact that he was perfect is credited to us. And God then sees us through the lens of Jesus' blood and sees us as having fulfilled and completed the law. That is the gospel. We're made righteous. We're not made righteous because of our actions. We're made righteous because of his actions. We're made righteous because we believe on him who was righteous. That is the only way 
to the Father. He says that we're fulfilling the purpose of the law. What was the purpose of the law? To point to our need. That, like, literally, the entire portion of this book that is called the Old Testament is outlining that you, you have a problem that you need an answer to, and the answer is coming. And then you get to the Gospels, and they say, this is the answer to that problem. And then you spend the rest of the New Testament going, did you see how cool the answer was? That's the whole Bible. That's all it is. It's just that problem being unfolded for us. So he says the point and the purpose of the law was to show you that you need that answer. So when you have faith in that answer, what happens? You fulfill the purpose of the law. You believe what the law has told you, that you need that. That's the whole point. The purpose of the law is fulfilled when we cry for mercy, not when we go out there and try to keep every rule. That's not the point. So my question for you today is this. What is your answer to God? And here's the thing. I, I need you to understand, like, this is not a one-time thing. Like, your, your salvation is settled when you put your hope in Jesus Christ. I want you to understand that. But living that out is essential to the reality that you actually did it. Right? Because if you just come over here and you just like somebody gives you the, the sinner's prayer, right? And you just go, well, okay, um, Jesus, I believe that you're Lord and Savior and uh, forgive me my sins. Done. And then you walk out the door and you live a sin-filled, rebellious, God-hating life. Those words were not magic. They did nothing to your soul. It didn't matter. The reality is that, that if you are saved, if God sends you His Spirit and settles the issue, it will result in works. Works do not save you, but they flow from faith. So my question to you is, what is your answer? And, and how do you know what your answer is? How are you living? Are you living like knowing a lot of theology is going to get you to heaven? Are you living like attending church every week is going to get you to heaven? Are you living like if you tie the certain amount or if you don't say certain words in public that somehow you're good to go? Are, is, there, is there a public sin that you've decided if I condemn that one openly, then God will see that I'm on his team? Or is your life lived out in this fear of hurting God because why? Because He saved you. I don't want to hurt God. He loved me. He was patient with me. He, he saved me. He moved me from death to life. Why would I want to offend Him? Why would I want to live in rebellion to Him who has cared for me more than anyone I've ever known? That is the whole point. Guys, Romans, like, go home one day this week. Seriously, go home one day this week and just read the first eight chapter of Romans out loud. Out loud. There's so much inflection that you don't catch when you're just, because how do we read the Bible in our heads? And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's not, that's not it. Go home and read chapters one through eight out loud in one sitting. It should bring you to tears. 
And here's the thing, it will reveal your heart. Because if you can read the gospel, if you can read what Jesus has done for you and go, oh, cool, you know, sweet, free ticket, that is revealing who you are on the inside. The gospel has the power to show us who we are. And if you sit in here week after week and, you, and the message you get, I don't think I've preached. I'm, I've certainly been guilty of preaching this, so don't. I know I'm not perfect in this, but if you hear me preaching, and I hope you don't hear this, saying, go out there and be better, that is not the message. I'm sure I've said something close to that before, and I, I'm sorry for that. Because what I want you to hear is, go out there and cling to Jesus. It's your only hope. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.